time, just about time for class to begin, so encourage everyone to come on in and have a seat, and we'll be ready to go here in just a few minutes. Uh, I was handed a note. Becky went to the doctor today, thought she broke her, fell and broke her arm, was announced Sunday. She doesn't have a broken arm. She broke the ball off her arm into the shoulder, into the shoulder socket, which is much more serious than just a broken arm. So please remember her and put her in your prayers and, and help her as we understand the fact that this is not as easy as it, we thought it'd be. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful to you tonight for the great opportunity that you give us to open your word and study from it. And we pray for wisdom. We pray for guidance. We pray that you might be with us. We pray especially that you might be with Becky and others that are ill or are facing difficult times. We pray your blessings to be with those who have uh, contacted the COVID virus. We pray your blessings to be with them as they struggle to recover from that. Guide each one of us, Father, as we study. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I want you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Now, we spent some time two or three weeks ago on Revelation chapter 1, uh, introducing really the study of the book of Revelation. We're just going to be uh, looking at this text that we haven't done. We're going to be trying to draw some lessons from the early part of this uh, book. A unique book, to say the least. It's written in three different styles I've mentioned before. A style of the epistle style, which we're going to be looking at tonight. Then a style of the uh, time where you can see the visions and the apocalyptic type thing. And then there are uh, prophecies that are given as well. So three different styles of writing. Kind of unique to us especially. But this that, that, that begins here and the, the styles of writing that begins in the very beginning of this is rather important for us. And I hope we can get... Uh, things going here where we can understand what's going on. Maybe maybe we can do that by we see uh, the revelation of, Je of John, of Jesus Christ. Remember always the first five words of this book outline for you the theme of the entire book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelation by Jesus Christ. If Jesus was just giving us a revelation, it could have been about anybody. But this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what He's done for us. This is what He means to us. This is what we can benefit from His time. And I want you to notice, if you got your Bible open to Revelation chapter 1, just notice that first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God gave that message to Jesus Christ. John, uh, uh, Jesus in turn gave it to an angel who in turn gave it to John, the apostle. Now some writers have looked at this and said, yeah, John borrowed a lot of his writing from Babylonians and the Greeks and the, the Jewish people and mythology. Now I want you to know something. God may or may not have used imagery in some of his writings that were uh, familiar to Christians in Asia. But the idea that John himself appropriated pagan mythology contradicts the plain teaching of Revelation. John, the, re the revelator, as he presents himself here, John is just introduced as John. 
His message was from God. The apostle simply wrote down what he saw and what he heard. You can see that in verse 11 of chapter 1 and verse 19 of chapter 1. That's what he wrote down. Not something that he found from somebody else, some other kinds of things. But I want you to understand that this is the message that he is going to show and benefit his bond servants. I want you to think for a moment. In other words, he's doing this for his people. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. We can find that same kind of idea. The Greek word that's translated bond servants here means slaves. Just let that word sink into you. He has given us, you and I, considered us as slaves. But think about it. You know from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 that we've been bought with a price. We're not our own anymore. When we put to death the old man of sin and were buried with him in the waters of baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We're new creatures. We've been born again. We're now living for Christ. We're living as His slaves, as His servants. Over and over and over and over again, He tells the apostles as they traveled with Him and as He was aware of what they were doing, that they need to be servants. Even that last night when they were having that Passover meal together, Jesus took that basin of water, girded himself with a towel, and washed the apostles' feet. Why? To demonstrate to them that you must be servants. Not only that, but we must also understand that this is a, a message to show his bondservants the things which must shortly come to pass, the things which must soon come to pass. He gave him, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Greek word translated soon actually means quickly. That's uh, interesting. Or immediately. You see, the phrase is translated, this is what must happen soon. In one translation of, of the Bible, it's listed as what is about to happen. In response to the cry of how long, O Lord, in, in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, Jesus, or maybe I should say God, answered at that particular time, take courage, it won't be long. I'm on my way to rescue you and to punish your enemies. Now, now to get this message to his people, God used a chain of revelation. God gave the message to Jesus. Jesus sent his angel with that message to give it to John. And John was to deliver that message to his people in order to encourage them. John's the apostle John, you know. Probably the sole surviving apostle at this time. If this book was written, as I think it was in the 90s, John definitely was the only apostle left surviving at that particular time. Although there's another thought I want to impress on your mind from verse 1. And he sent and signified it to his angel by his servant John. Here is the unique blessing that John has to provide for us. Now skip on down to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads, and they who understand, or who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed. I want you to notice that. Look in your, look in your Bible. Verse 3. Blessed is he. Singular. 
Blessed are those, plural. Why? Probably because during that time, it was a time when not everybody could read. Not many actually had that ability to really read. It was a time when uh, to have copies of the letters that had been written previous to this for themselves to read was almost an impossibility for more than one reason. Most people would not have the money, first of all, to purchase them if they were for sale. Most likely they weren't. Most of the letters Paul wrote, wrote to churches and individuals and asked them to make sure that others read them. The Ephesians, for instance, he he told in the, in the last chapter that to make sure that this letter was read to the church of the Laodiceans. It's interesting to know that here are the one standing up reading the Word of God to those that were there. One man did the reading. Many of them did the hearing. One translation says, everyone who reads this to others. In those days... As I said, many could not read. In those days, many did not have the money. And if those people were to know the will of God for their lives, the public reading of the gospel was of a necessity. Romans 10, verse 17. We know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. People of that time needed to hear it. So blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and then add the, add the third one to that and those who keep those things, those who obey, those who, who follow the will of God. If people are going to know the will of God, then they're going to have to have somebody stand up there and read it for them. They're going to have to have somebody that's willing to do that a public reading of the Word of God was an absolute necessity. Read with me again, beginning in verse 4. Paul or John says to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace be to you, and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and who washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Now think with me as we look on the standard. This is a, somewhat of a standard form. John's description here as he begins uh, uh, the, the, this epistle, kind of a standard form of how the epistles were written. Letters begin by identifying the sender and the recipients. And thus we read John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, Asia, as it's used here, does not refer to the continent of Asia. It rather refers to the province, the Roman province of Asia, which was located on the western shore of what is now Turkey. Now, seven churches. Two things I want you to notice. The seven churches are those which met at the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Not only that, there's the number seven is important. That's not all the churches in the province, the Roman province of Asia. There are more churches there. And we can read of them in the New Testament. But I want you to notice John's description of Jesus that he found 
and, and it's, to me it's very unique as he describes Jesus for us. Which is showing the omniscience, the omnipresence of God, of Christ. You see, Christ was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore, he says. What a blessing that is. I've read some things, and I'm sure you have too, of those who, uh, who deny the fact that Jesus ever rose from the dead. No, He rose from the dead. And that gave us His beginning, which is. And then secondly, I want you to notice He says, which was. He was past as well as present. You remember reading and Jesus in the Gospel said, before Abraham was, I am. Back before all of that was taking place, Jesus was there. John tells us in John chapter 1, in the, beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was there. He was there in the creation. He was there making everything that was made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word made flesh and dwelt among men. He's the God of the past as well as the Lord of the present. And then two, He is also that which is to come. As sure as He is, as sure as He was, He's coming again. We, like people of the first century, can often have some problems with that particular idea. Our world today is struggling with the concept of Jesus coming again. Verse 7 says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see Him. It's not going to be a, a secret coming. It's not going to be something that no one else knows about. It's going to be a coming when every eye shall see Him. This same Jesus whom you see go, shall go away shall come in like manner as you've seen Him go. He shall return again without sin unto salvation. He is past, He is present, and He is the future. He's without number of days or ending of years. Some of those concepts we, we, we have difficulty with. He's the eternal one. Now you, you think about Jesus and let that, that, let that kind of sink into you. And, and then also the seven spirits which are before the throne. We're going to talk in just a few minutes about this number seven, so keep that in mind. Seven spirits which are before the throne. The essence of life, the the, the completeness of the life, the, the Father of all spirits. You see, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. Or the eternal spirit, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, who is through, the, through which uh, Jesus offered himself through that spirit. Now I want you to understand something for a moment without going into great detail. The spirit that we're talking about here is not the spirit that dwells in you. It's not the spirit that was given to the apostles in the first cha second chapter of Acts. You see, there the spirit gave them certain abilities where they could perform miracles or, and various other things, speak languages they'd never heard before, and called to memory things they had forgotten and all of this kind of thing, they were able to do that. And they were able to pass that on by laying hands on other people, but that person couldn't pass it on. If you remember back in, in, first, in, uh, in first Corinthians chapter 13, when he's talking about love there, he says love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but 
But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. In James, the first chapter, where verse 25 says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, it's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. What is the perfect law of liberty? It's the Bible that we hold. It's the Word of God that's been delivered to us. The Spirit gave us that. Not that He enabled us to perform miracles. Not that He enabled us to speak languages we'd never heard before. Not that we could be able to raise the dead or heal the sick. But the Spirit is given to us. Remember when Peter preached that sermon on, uh, in Acts chapter 2? And the men and brethren cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, let every one of you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift of the Spirit dwells in us. Romans tells us in, in chapter 8 that it helps us with our prayers. There are a lot of ways the Spirit of God living in man today helps in various ways. And then also, he says, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, one who is truth, a giver of inerrant testimony, a divine witness and eternal victory over death. Therefore, he said to have the keys of death and Hades. Chapter 1, verse 18. Or eternal life, shall we say. And then, he is the first begotten from the dead. A complete victory over death. A complete victory over hell and the grave. Declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 and verse 4. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead does and dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him and no more dominion over us if we are obedient to Christ. That victory over death forever and etern or eternal victory over death. Therefore he said to have the keys of death and Hades. Or he, he, he is to have eternal life. And then two, number seven, I want you to know he is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. Revelation 19 and verse 16. He is the one and only blessed potentate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who has immortality dwelling in might, which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to the to whom be honor and power everlasting, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Hence the perfect king, the immortal king, the eternal king, is Jesus Christ. The one who gave to John this letter that he wanted sent to all seven of the churches. At number seven, is rather interesting. We've seen a number of things here that are in the number seven. Seven churches of Asia, which is not the full group of the churches of Asia. We've seen seven spirits that were around the throne of God. Seven means perfect. It means that which is complete. I'm told that those back in the uh, years, years ago, considered this earth flat, as you know. They considered the four corners, or we could say north, east, south, and west. They considered the earth in that way four times. And then the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three. Three and four make seven perfection. God's creation and the Trinity of Godhead makes everything perfect. Man's not perfect. 
the number of man concerning at this particular time is six. You, you, you remember that in the book of Revelation, man is identified with the number 666. A lot of people have misunderstood exactly what that means. It means man. That, that's that's the, the, the reality of how man is. Man just has failed that much over and over and over again. Think about that for a moment. Seven means perfection. And all of the seven churches that he picked out are churches that represent all of the churches of Christ. All of them, were, whether they were in, in Asia, a Roman province of Asia or wherever, they were part of that. Now, I'm going to ask you to bear with me for a moment. I want to go back and set up the stage for us to read a little further. One night, when Daniel was an old man in Babylon, he had a vision. He saw the Ancient of Days, according to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. He saw them, them pass judgment on the four terrible beasts. And then he beheld one like the Son of Man. He later wrote, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominions and everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdoms, uh, kingdoms one which will not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Later on, Daniel was told by the spirit that was guiding him at that time, seal up the words of this prophecy. Do not write it. Do not make, make it known. John was never given that. John was saying, you, you, you bring this message to the people. We want people to understand it. When Daniel saw the one like the Son of Man, he is distressed and alarmed. According to Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. 600 years later, on a tiny island in the Aegean Sea, another old man saw one like the Son of Man. Revelation 1.13. And when he did, he collapsed at his feet as a dead man. 1.17. Who is this son of man? And why does he have this effect on those who behold it? In this lesson, I want us to study from Revelation as we begin this, this part, and in these verses, John told of his commission, right, but he did more. He described his first vision, the vision of one like the Son of Man, like Daniel did. That vision sets the stage for the rest of the book. If we would understand Revelation, we must know one depicted by Daniel and John. If we would be blessed by the message of Revelation, we too must fall down before him. Read with me again. Revelation chapter 1 beginning with verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea, We'll stop at that particular point because I want, to, I want you to understand 
what, what John heard at this time. I want you to notice, first of all, that John began with, by saying, I, John, your brother. Interesting to me, he didn't say, I, John, the apostle. I, John, the close companion of Jesus while he was here on this earth. I, John, your brother. Your brother and your companion. He identified himself simply as that brother. He referred to himself as a fellow partaker in the, in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, for early part of verse 9. Fellow partaker. It's translated from a Greek word which means, means to save with or to have in common. John was a fellow partaker, or one translation says he was a companion with his fellow readers in three ways, in tribulation, in the kingdom, and in perseverance. These are the three pivotal themes of Revelation. Tribulation, in the kingdom, and perseverance. We need those. We face those all the time. These are, were inseparable shelves of first century Christians. John identified himself as your companion and brother in tribulation. He was referring to the suffering that Christians at that time were undergoing. The word translated tribula tribulation originally meant pressure. But in the New Testament, it came to describe those who had that pressure of events, which is persecution. Christians were being persecuted because they were in the kingdom. During this time, Domitian was the ruler of the Roman Empire. One of his rules that he had, laws that he had ordained, was that they had to honor him as God. Christians wouldn't do that. I think the prophecy that, that John's talking about here was fulfilled when Jesus ascended to God and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36. Jesus sent, then sent the Holy Spirit to establish His kingdom. Acts chapter 2 in the first few verses. Their kingdom was known as the church, Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. And John and his readers were fellow partakers in it. Since their loyalty was to, the king, to King Jesus, not to Emperor Domitian, tribulation was the natural result that John talks about at this time. Those in the kingdom needed perseverance, the ability to remain steadfast, in spite of all their troubles. The fact that they were fellow partakers would help them to persevere. The burdens are lighter when they're shared. The fact that they were in Jesus would also help. You see, in Jesus is a term used throughout the New Testament to refer to a Christian special relationship with Jesus. A relationship that comes because we've been baptized into Jesus and in Him we can find strength to go on. Oh yes, there are times when we need that strength. John then told where he was physically and that he had received his commission to write. He was on an island called Patmos because of the Word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a, a small, lonely, windswept island used as a Roman prison. John had been exiled there because he bodily preached God's word and refused to stifle his testimony concerning Jesus. The Roman government had sent him to Patmos to silence him. But the Lord was about to give him a revitalized voice. John then shared a more prominent fact where he was spiritually when he was told to write. Think about this for a moment. John 
by himself, as far as we know, on that lonely island. Oh, there were more people there, but not with John at this particular time. But on the Lord's day, he was in the Spirit. The word Lord's day occurs only twice in the Bible. We know it as the first day of the week. Sunday, Lord's Day. The time when we gather together for worship and especially to observe the Lord's Supper as He commanded us to do. It was also in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and verse 20 when Paul was referring to the Lord's Supper as the same kind of occurrence as here. Speaks of since the early days of the church, the, Lord, the term Lord's Day has been used to refer to that first day of the week, and the Lord's Supper has been used to refer to the communion in which we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now look at that phrase, I was in the Spirit. Same terms are used in, in chapter 4, verse 2. In both places, a literal translation would be that I came to be in the Spirit. Coming to be in the Spirit refers to John's Spirit becoming receptive to the Holy Spirit. And probably means the same in chapter 1 and verse 10 when he says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Something about John's situation on the Lord's Day made him receptive to the Lord's revelation. And since the Lord's Day is a day of worship, that something was probably John's worship experience. Do you ever feel that way on the Lord's Day? Does the privilege of worship, meditation, thought, ever feel that this is something that that, that, that is just absolutely necessary for you. That was John's worship experience. And, I, and here's, here's how I picture it in my mind. I, I can picture John rising early on the first day of the week, as probably he had for the last 60 years. By the time the sun rose, he had already been seated on a rocky ledge overlooking the blue waters to the east. Spray perhaps was coming from the, the waves that came in and hitting his face at that particular time. But his thoughts were not on the sea. His thoughts were not where his brothers were gathering to worship. Tears, I'm sure, came to his eyes when he envisioned those whom he loved. He could see them praying. He could, he could see them breaking bread and singing. And there on his lonely perch, he lifted his own voice. Old, cracked, but filled with emotion. He's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God, and father to him be glory and dominion forever. Verse 8 and ever. Suddenly the earth seemed to sink away from him. Horizon receded and John's soul seemed to be liberated from the shackles of time and space and he was out of contact with the physical world around him. He was in the spirit. He saw but not with physical eyes. He heard but not with physical ears. He was in direct spiritual contact with his Savior then John's attention was captured by a loud voice behind him. A voice clear, a voice that was commanding, like the sound of a trumpet. Verse 10. The, voice, the verse said, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches of Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Now the church in Ephesus had been John's home congregation for more than 20 years. 
He knew brethren in other places that were mentioned. But now I want you to see what he saw. We've seen all of those. What he saw, he turned to see the voice and was, that was speaking to him. When he turned, can you imagine how he felt at that moment? He recognized a friend whom he had not seen in six decades. But he saw him as he had never seen him before. John was standing wide-eyed at Jesus in all of his glory. The one Daniel had known only as one like the Son of Man. And as we attempt to picture this vision, remember that it's a vision, not a reality. Remember something that he saw. John, John was wide awake, no question about that. But there's still a dreamlike quality about it. Shapes shift and change. And constancies often irrelevant. Improbabilities of the rule, not the exception. For instance, in this, in, in this vision that he, say, he sees, Jesus in his right hand is holding seven stars. How can that be? How could he hold seven stars? Stars are composed of burning gases as our own sun is. And all the stars are as big or bigger than our sun. Seven stars. Could Jesus' right hand hold stars and at the same time, at the same time be placed upon John as it is in verse 17? No, there's no answer to these questions. No point in them. Anything's possible in a vision. Now I want you to see the vision as a whole. And that vision in detail. Often the details of vision have little or no significance in and of themselves. But in chapter 1 vision, the details are important. In the letters to the seven churches, every one of them begins with a description of Jesus that's seen in this cha first chapter of Revelation. Something about Jesus, something about the vision that John saw is in the introduction to each of the seven, seven churches. Mainly drawn from that vision. Therefore, we need to give heed to uh, and more attention to each part of the vision. And normally, I'll, I'll start where John did. Jesus was standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now, get something in mind. This is not lampstands like was in the temple. The lamp in, temple, in the temple was one lampstand with seven different lamp, uh, lights upon it. Here, there's seven different lampstands, and Jesus is standing in the midst of them. And he tells that the seven, seven lampstands are the seven churches, seven congregations in the Roman province of Asia. Churches weren't lamps, but lampstands, pedestals upon which the lamps are placed. You know, we're to shed the light. We're to show the light. But he's referring to the, church, the churches as just lampstands. Jesus himself is the light, according to John chapter 8 and verse 12. Christians reflect that light, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16. But the church is to hold up that light for all the world to see. And they were made of pure gold the most precious of metals. The church is precious to Jesus. Acts 20 and verse 28 and Ephesians 5, 23 and 25. Consider this. The lamp stands were seven actual congregations. And some of them were poor 
and puny, problem-racked. Nevertheless, they still had a purpose to hold up the light of the gospel. They were still precious to Jesus. No matter how small the church where you worship may be, if it's faithful to the Lord, it's more valuable than gold in His eyes. And then in the middle of the lampstands, John saw Jesus. 13, first 13, early part. You see, today many search for Jesus everywhere, but except where he can be found. They're, they're, they're looking for him in charismatic leaders or man-made fellowships and New Age mysticism and all that kind of thing. If you want to find Jesus, look for him in his church. If you want to be where he is, worship with his people. John began to describe Jesus referring to him as one likened to the Son of Man. And during his earthly ministry, his favorite self-designation was the Son of Man. Matthew 8, 20. The term is found more than 80 times in the Gospel accounts. The designation had messianic overtones, according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And then I want you to see the description of Jesus' clothing. He was clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. It was across his breast was girded with a band of gold. The attire was that of the common working man. It was not the common working man's time. It was that of royalty instead. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. And then too, John concentrated on the person of Jesus. His head and his hair were white like white wool. Verse 14, and also Daniel 7, verse 9. The whiteness of his hair indicates purity and holiness, but it also may indicate the wisdom of the age. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Verse 14, and again in Daniel 10 and verse 6. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 4. His feet were like burnished brass when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. Daniel mentions that. Ezekiel does too, as does the Micah in Micah chapter 4 and verse 13. The daughter of of Zion was given bronze feet so that she might pulverize many peoples. The symbolism in Revelation 1 refers to Christ's ability to tread down the wicked, making them ashes under the soles of his feet. His voice was as the voice, as the sound of many waters. Verse 15, Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 6. It's powerful, it's majestic like the sound of the ocean waves pounding on the rocky shore of the Isle of Patmos. When the Lord speaks, men should listen. And in his right hand were the seven stars. The right hand was the hand of power. The psalmist sang to God, Thy right hand upholds me. Psalm 63, verse 8. Jesus was holding the seven stars in his right hand to keep and protect them. Jesus later identified the seven stars as the angels of the seven churches, verse 20. But this explanation has raised more questions than it's answered. Angel is an anglicized Greek word that simply means messenger. This can be an earthly messenger, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Matthew 10, 11, and verse 10 or a heavenly messenger, according to Luke chapter 2 and verse 9. The context has to determine what's meant. Every interpretation of the seven stars and angels has its difficulties in the rest of the Revelation. An angel always refers to heavenly messengers. That would be the preferred meaning to chapters 1 through 3. But that interpretation 
raise this question. Why are these angels addressed in chapters 2 and 3? Why are they held responsible for the sins of the congregation? Further, why would Jesus send an angel to give John a message that he was to write to the angels? If the angels were there. Many think that these were earthly messengers, perhaps representatives of the church sent to check on John while he is exiled. Again, we ask, why would Jesus address the letters to these men and make them responsible for the sins of the congregations? Personally, I like the idea that the messengers were elders of the church, who according to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, are held responsible for the congregations where they serve. Then, however, we have a problem of only one elder being addressed in each congregation. Some try to escape the problems inherent in literal literal messengers by saying that the angels represented the spirit of the congregations. The problem with this interpretation is that it means Jesus used figurative language to explain figurative language. Now, I'm saying all that to say that we cannot know for certain who or what the stars are. But we can still comprehend Jesus' point. Should we look at chapter 2 and in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Yeah, we can, we, we can understand that. We can see that. Jesus addressed that to the angel of the church in Ephesus. But in verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I, I will give to him uh, to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In other words, in that latter part, all the... what were to hear what the Spirit says. And therefore... Members of those churches were represented. The cryptic language in verse 16 must mean that Jesus holds the very faithful in his hand. What a privilege to know that Jesus is doing that for us. And no man or government can snatch them out. John chapter 10 and verse 28. Also, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12 is not that the message former importance than knowing specifically who or what the stars were. Now look at the description of Jesus. We read, Out of His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Since the Word of God is often uh, referred to as a sword, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 and Ephesians 6 and verse 17, since the sword came from Jesus' mouth, it surely must be identified as the Word of God. Do not think of it as the good news of the gospel. This was the Lord's word of judgment on His enemies. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 2. Chapter 2, concerning false teachers, He says, I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. 2 and verse 16. Then John wrote, His face is like the sun shining in its strength. Verse 16. Imagery is that of the sun blazing down at midday. We're reminded of the transfiguration of Jesus. When He was transfigured on the mountain, had become one from heaven. I want us to step back and just see that vision as a whole. I want us to look at something that was important for us. I want, to, I, I want you to see that examining parts of it bring to your mind thoughts concerning the overall impact of the vision. Could it be the key word of, of verses 12 through 16 would be power? But the power portrayed in the symbols had both positive and negative potential. Take, for instance, the image of verse 16, a sword can punish or protect. 
and the sun can burn or bless, hurt or heal. Now the purpose of the vision is to show that Jesus has power to know and then to act on that knowledge that Jesus had power to know is obvious in the vision. He was in the midst of the churches, so he knew what was happening. He knew what was going on. His eyes were all seeing. He had the power to act because of his knowledge. It's obvious as well. He was prepared to punish with his feet, with his sword. He was prepared to protect with his powerful right hand. Now look at the application of the vision in chapters 2 and 3. Those chapters Jesus is portrayed as one, as the one who knows. But he can also do something about what he knows. We must understand that. It seems to me that the message of the vision of the first century Christians was that the Lord was ready. That he was willing. That he was able to act on behalf of his people. The message of the to the 21st century Christians is that he's still ready. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? Psalms 27, verse 1. But notice how John reacted to that vision. We're told that when he, I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. 1 verse 17. You see, in order... John didn't prostrate himself in order to worship. He fell before him overcome by fear. Collapsed at Jesus' feet. Jesus had to lay a hand on him and said, Do not be afraid. John had been one of Jesus' closest friends. and When the disciples had reclined at mealtime, John had lain on him the master's right side. Leaning on Jesus' bosom. John chapter 13, verse 2. Yet when he saw Jesus in all of his glory, he did not say, Oh, it's good to see you again, my friend. Rather, like all the others, given a glimpse of the divine, he dropped as if he had been hit on the head. Eugene Peterson, the writer, called Revelation the last word on Christ and noted that the last word is glorious. The Danielic vision of the Son of Man. Today most are aware of the baby born in the manger who grew up to be a great teacher and healer. Many have heard of the one who died on the cross and, when they, and then was raised from the dead. Too few of us, however, are familiar with that great glorious one who is the blessed and only sovereign potentate king of kings and lord of lords that's jesus as we come into god's presence we have to avoid extremes on the one hand if we're paralyzed before we can never know the closeness of children who call him father on the other hand if we're over overly familiar we fail to extend to him the respect and reverence which he deserves the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Therefore let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe. Warren Wiersbe in one of his books says, What the church needs today is a new awareness of Christ and His glory. We need to see Him high and lifted up. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. There is a dangerous absence of awe and worship in our assemblies today. We're boasting about our standing on our feet instead of breaking and falling at His feet. Some are uncomfortable with the concept of a powerful Lord who punishes evil. They prefer the Jewish carpenter and the pale Galilean, the gentle shepherd. When evil comes into your life, however, the whole world turns against you and hope flies out the window, you need someone who knows your problem. 
your heartaches. Someone with the power to do something about it. Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20 says that someone you need is Jesus. I hope chapter 1 has been meaningful to you. I hope it's made you be aware of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the righteous one, the one whom we must honor as John did when he fell upon his face at that particular time worshiping Jesus. Would you do that? Do we have someone who's scheduled to lead prayer? I will. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful to you for your blessings today. We're thankful, Father, for this opportunity of being together, opportunity of studying from your word. And Father, may we always have the opportunity and privilege to honor you in righteousness and honor you as the great King of kings and Lord of lords. Be with us, Father. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name.